Parshat Vayigash has a whole lot of very big things in it. Uh, and some of them are sort of elided. I'll just touch on a couple of them right now. The end of the parsha has a detailed description of Yosef's economic policy in Egypt and how uh, he deals with the last five years of the famine in which the Egyptians get reduced step by step until at the end, all of Egypt, with the exception of two groups, uh, is enslaved to Pharaoh. One group is, of course, Yosef's family. And the other is the Kohanim, the priests of Egypt. Uh, but what's interesting about it is that it seems that Yosef is the one who introduced its, introduced state slavery into Egypt. In other words, slaves have existed forever. And, um, and the, the notion of slavery has always been a private piece, meaning somebody who's rich enough, they bought slaves. And somebody who's poor enough, they got sold as slaves or if they're taken in battle or whatever. But the idea of state slavery and of people being owned by the state, which of course has its uh, parallels in uh, 20th century uh, Eastern Europe, as an example, um, is something that seems to be introduced by Yosef, which, of course, is interesting because as the worm turns, several generations later, Yosef's own family, who was the one group, um, should I say the one ethnic group that was exempted from that slavery, nice. then become the, the slaves of the state. But that's a side piece. We also have, um, uh, obviously, at the beginning the whole drama of Yehuda's speech and how Yosef finally uh, reveals himself. And, of course, there's the big topic, which is the list of B'nai Israel coming down and how the list becomes 70 and 69 and how come there's no girls in the list and the famous passage of the fact that the Septuagint has 70, 75 instead of 70. Lots of stuff there. I want to look at another piece, which is also significant in the uh, in the parsha. But it stretches also to last, last week's parasha. Um, and so we're going to start with a passage in last week's parasha, and then I'll show you how it, how it dovetails into ours. When Yosef's brothers come down the second time, meaning with Binyamin, Shimon is in prison, nine brothers come down with Binyamin, making ten, and then Shimon is released to them, and they are brought in to have a feast with Yosef. <coughs> it is the only the second time that we hear the verb shikor in Tanakh after Noah's famous drunken episode in the tent. The next people who actually get are called drunk, although we certainly hope that Lot was drunk those nights, uh, is Yosef and his brothers. And at that meal, we find the following description. So the Egyptians set up a meal for uh, for Yosef's uh, brothers, but we don't know that the Yosef's brothers. They don't know the Yosef's brothers, and the servants don't know it. So they set it up for Yosef separately and for the brothers separately, and that all makes sense because he's the king and they're the the visitors. And the Egyptians who are eating with him, members of the court, have a separate table. Separate seating. Why? The Egyptians cannot eat, and the key word here is lachem, as you see I highlighted it, because it is a disgusting thing or an abomination to Egypt. Now, what are they talking about? What is an abomination? (coughs) The simplest read without any other context, just looking at it this way, would be that 
for Egyptians to eat with either outsiders or these outsiders or poor outsiders or this ethnic group, whoever it is, is a disgusting thing. We don't know why it's a disgusting thing, but that's what we're here. And as a result of that, the Egyptians who are members of Yosef's court, they don't eat with Yosef because Yosef's the king. They don't know, they may not know that he's in free. His identity may have been covered up by, Par- by Paro. They also don't eat with uh, visitors because the visitors are these disgusting people who for some reason the king wants to have joined. We don't know why. Now this does play into uh, into our parasha. Um, later on, if you see in source five, and we're going to come back to it, but just to make the, the connection right now, when the brothers come down and there is, in our parasha, there is the reunion and everybody's happy and tearing and crying and everything else. And Yosef then introduces his brothers to Paro. He then tells him, tells the brothers, when Paro asks you what you do, tell them, he'll tell them that you are shepherds, right? And then he says, in order that you will live in Eretz Goshen, and then look at the green there at the end of source five, ki tuavat mitraim kol ro eitzon. We're now given some info information that will help us with our passage, source one, that shepherds are a toy vatimitzrayim. All right, so now we go back and we say, aha, we now understand why the Egyptians in Yosef's court would not eat with the brothers, because the brothers are shepherds, and shepherds are toy vatimitzrayim. We can't eat with them. We assume it's all one and the same reason. So what's the toy So we have a particular Midrashic tradition that goes back to, it's earlier than this, but we see it in Unkos, at the end of Unkos's translation of this pasuk, it says, He says, because the animals, and literally the grazers, that the Egyptians worship, we eat. So now what that means here is that the sense we get is that the Ivrim are going to be eating sheep, and the sheep are a revered animal among the Egyptians, and therefore, they can't eat with us because it's disgusting to them, which, of course, raises, Rashi quotes this favorably, it, of course, raises several problems. First of all, why would we refer to the deity as a toiva? That's A. Second of all, why would the shepherds then be toivat mitzrayim? After all, if you think about it, shepherds are the ones who are taking care of their deity, unless it's supposed to be that they wander free and shepherds are not good guys that, but why call them a toiva? It's a little bit of a strange word. Um, the uh, so let, let's continue taking a look at it because we have to figure out what the toavat mitzrayim here is. What is it that upsets the Egyptians so much about shepherds and about eating with them? Now, the last thing I want to point out in source one is again the word lechem. What does the word lechem mean in Tanakh? So we, here's a classic case of where we get confused about meaning of Hebrew words because we speak modern Hebrew, thank God. And we sometimes think that Hebrew is written in modern, and the Tanakh is written in modern Hebrew. In modern Hebrew, lechem is bread. Right? What does lechem mean in Tanakh? So if you take a look here at source um, um, eight, a pasuk we all know very well, we just heard it the other day and, and the day before that, at Korbani Lachmi Li'ishai. God says, tell B'nai Israel, 
my korban is my lechem to my fire is something that should be kept every day. And what is that lechem? One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening, which means lechem does not exclusively mean bread. It may mean food and it may mean meat. So now let's take a look back at our story and read it a little differently. The Egyptian servants gave Yosef his food separately and gave the brothers separately. And the Egyptians who were eating with them, not the servants, the Egyptians who were eating with them had separate food place. They cannot eat lechem with the Ivrim. Now, what's the toiva? So if lechem actually means lamb, then we understand why it's a toiva, because how can you be eating our deity? But that, again, is also difficult, because why would um, Yosef be serving something that the Egyptians revere? I mean, Yosef is an Egyptian. And why would he serve that? Even at a meal where these Ivrim are there, yeah, you went into Rome, you do like the Romans. So it's, it, that's a little bit difficult. All right, so now let's continue looking through the story and we'll get some clues as to what's going on. How could they eat uh, lamb anyways? Why not? It wasn't the Shrita. They, they kept all the mitzvahs, no? Uh, that's an assumption that's very hard to support. Mm-hmm. In other words, the notion that there was, there were Hilchot Shrita, and by the way, who then was a Shochet? Where? Um, you're saying that, that, that they... Well, you see, Al-Avram brought so and he prepared it for them, so he was a Shochet. So who was a shochet for these boys? How, who, how would they get proper meat? Where? The, the brothers. Zvulun. How did Zvulun eat oh, meat? Yeah, yeah, no, they, knew, they knew the halachas. They, they were taught by Yaakov. They knew. Okay, so that will be difficult because in the pasuk that, pre, that, pre, uh, that prefaces the one on top, Yosef says to the Egyptians, Utvoach tevach vehachen, which means slaughter the animals and prepare them because the brothers are going to eat with me. So it's fairly clear that they... What? Okay. He yeah, it's it. fairly clear that the Egyptians were slaughtering animals for the Hebrews to eat. But that, again, okay. raises the problem. Then how could we possibly imagine that the problem is that the Egyptians worship these animals? How could Yosef possibly think that it's okay, besides blowing his cover, how could he possibly think that it's okay to ask Egyptians themselves to slaughter their own deity just to give... Food to some guests. A very strange thing. All right? So now, we, we look into our parasha, and we hear an interesting use of words. What word would you use in Hebrew to describe a flock? What word do we use for a flock? Tzon? Tzon, that's the word. Tzon, a flock. You might say behema as a generic word for animal. You want to get super more generic, you might want to say chaya, a living beast. Fine. There is a word that shows up uncommonly, I wouldn't say rarely, but infrequently in Tanakh for grazing animals, and it's the following. In source three, Pharaoh and his servants are all very happy that Yosef's brothers have come. The reunion is very nice. It's beautiful. So Paro, this is before Paro meets the brothers. Paro says to Yosef, go tell your brothers the following. Load up your beer. We'll talk about that word. 
and go to Canaan, and then bring your father and all your animals, everything down here to Egypt. Now, what is what is he referring to? He's referring to their animals. How does he refer to their animals? Which here, by the way, is almost assuredly donkeys. But how, how does he refer to the animals? He refers them to them as beir. And by the way, we, we're familiar with that from Parsha Mishpatim. And that's when an animal goes into somebody else's field and eats. This is, a, a, the translation of this would be a grazer. Fill up your grazers. Load up your grazers. So how does paro relate to our animals? As animals that graze. Which is interesting because the narrative describes it a little differently. It says, In other words, that same flock is called the miknet. Uh, holding. All right, in source four. So why does Paro have this different perspective on how uh, on what the animals are and call them beir? So let's take a look at one more source that actually shows up in Shemot, the last place that this Toiva idea shows up in in our context. And we see, see as follows: in after um, um, after Makat Tzfardeo. Uh, Paro says to Moshe, okay, you guys can offer your offering to your God here in Egypt. You can't leave. What does Moshe say? We can't offer this. Remember, the whole premise of Yitzhak Mitzrayim started with a request to go for three days in the desert and worship God. That's the whole setup. Paro calls Moshe's bluff. He says, you know what? You don't need to go. You can do it right here. Moshe says, we can't do it right here because we would be offering up to Avat Mitzrayim to Hashem. Would we offer them up and they won't stone us? We have to go for three days. And then, and then, so Paro says, you want me to send, I'll send you for three days and you can slaughter animals for God in the desert. Just don't go too far. And then Moshe prays and the frogs stop and then the, the frogs are on. And then uh, Paro says, forget about it. And we go back to that, that whole hijinks. Torah Mitzrayim. So what is Torah Mitzrayim? Are we going to interpret this as saying we could, would be slaughtering their deity and they would, they would stone us? But that's kind of weird. Why would Paro even think that it's okay for them to slaughter, and Paro's a religious man in his own religion, that it's okay for them to slaughter sheep? Very strange. Very odd. So I want to take you, um, I want to take you here. We all know this story, the beginning of Parshat Miketz, is Paro's dreams. What are Paro's dreams? They involve two items, two kinds of items. What are they? Cows and stalks. We know that. We've talked about the dreams in the past. And how what the dreams actually were, was it the way that's described here, or is the way Rav Sadiqon says Yosef turned it around, that the first dream was seven fat cows eating seven fat stalks, and the second one was seven skinny cows eating seven skinny stalks, which is elegant. Um, either way, those are the two figures, the two symbols in it. What are cows in Tanakh? 
See, when we think cows, we think hamburger. What are cows in Tanakh? Cows in Tanakh are plowers. Meat comes from sheep. Cows are only used for meat when they no longer can work. But sheep and goats are raised for meat. Most of the korbanot are kvasim, lambs, numerically. Or goats, female goats. What is it Paro sees in his dream? Cows and sheaves. In other words, Paro's dream is fully within an agricultural setting, a farming setting, which makes sense because that's what we know about Egypt. Let's take a look at the Mepharshim and see what they have to say about the Tuavat Mitzrayim. We already saw Rashi quoted Unklus, and we saw Unklus saying the Egyptians worshipped the sheep. We asked some questions on that. Take a look at the Rashbam. The Rashbam, in this, in the particular context, makes a lot of sense and it becomes very difficult. He says, It would be a disgusting thing to the Egyptians. The Egyptians find it disgusting to eat with the people from the other side of the river. In other words, they regard us as sort of quasi-Mesopotamians. And those people are disgusting. They think of us as lowly. Now, I'm not sure where the Rashbam got this from. But if you look back at the Psukim, that works very well in the first context. This is where the Rashbam comments. That the Egyptians would not eat with us because it was a Tuaiva. But it does not at all work here where they say that the Egyptians found shepherds to be disgusting. That's not about area or region. That's about livelihood. But it really becomes difficult in the context of Shemot. Tuavat Mitzrayim Nizbach, that we will be slaughtering Tuavat Mitzrayim. If you say that people, the Mesopotamians, are talking, what does that have to do with this? Very difficult uh, explanation. The Radak has a different take. It's a brilliant take, and I'm going to pick up on it and go a little further. The Radak says, Ki ha'ivrim hayu ochlim basar. The Ivrim were carnivores. After all, what did Yosef tell his stewards to do before that meal? Slaughter animals and prepare them. He said the Egyptians, now this is the Radak in the 13th century, says the Egyptians were vegetarians. Why did they raise flock? For milk and for wool. That's why the Egyptians raised son. I'm not sure why he thinks there is Tzon. He quotes the Midrash that they worshipped Ares. They would not eat any animals. So in other words, he's now trying to give an explanation why they were vegetarians. They weren't vegetarians because they deified, but he quotes that as a something. Ibn Ezra takes it further. Ibn Ezra, by the way, it's important to note, as we all know, was an itinerant commentator. He traveled and he was poor. And therefore, as a result of that, he would often meet other travelers who were also, you know, um, people who had been taken hostage in places and prisoners. He tells also interesting stories. And here he says the following. He met, by the way, he met people who had been in India. This is is now 11th 11th century, beginning of the 12th century. He says the same thing as the Radak. He says they didn't, they were vegetarians. Which, by the way, we're going to see that that works, but there's a, there's a reason for it that they haven't hit yet. 
They would not allow anybody to slaughter a sheep, right? Because we think it's wrong. And he says, just like today, the Indians do. And as he's talking about India, he's talking about Hindus. Therefore, a shepherd is a toivawai. Watch what he says. The opposite of, uh, of the Radak. He says, shepherds are disgusting because what do they do? They drink the milk. He's taking the Indian model. The Ibn Ezra is influenced by the, by the Hindu model. And he says, the Egyptians were vegetarians and they would revere the animals and therefore they would not use the animals at all. And shepherds were disgusting because they should drink animal milk. And he said, until this very day, the Hindus don't eat anything from any living being that has any feelings. Right? Interesting take. It still is difficult because of the following. If it's indeed the case that the Egyptians um, revere animals, let's say like the Ibn Ezra, and are vegetarians as a result, uh, then you got to wonder, why does Moshe say, how could we slaughter sheep? After all, we'd be slaughtering 12 at Mitzrayim. That's not true. We'd be slaughtering something that they revere. So again, that's the same problem with the first approach of the of the uh, of the uh, of the uncles that it's their deity. But then it doesn't fit with this whole notion of being removed and disgusting because you guys eat meat. In other words, the Hebrews are called Tuavat Mitzrayim because they eat meat. Um, um, the um, the Shepherds are considered Tovat Mitzrayim because they benefit from meat or they drink from the milk. Why are the animals called Tovat Mitzrayim? The problem is the Torah is using the same term in these different contexts. So I'd like to make a different suggestion. What is the oldest battle in history? The oldest battle in history. The oldest fight in history. So take a look in Bereshit. What's the oldest fight in history? Between whom? Is it the first? five kings? Is it the five kings? Way before that. Way before that. Kain and Hevel. Kain and Hevel. Good. They fight? Kain and Hevel. Right there. What did Hevel do for a living? Farmed. Right there. He's a shepherd. I mean shepherd. What's Kain do for a living? He's a farmer. The rancher and the farmer should be friends is a great song at the end of Oklahoma because the rancher and the farmer hate each other. And this dispute, this ongoing battle between ranchers and farmers is something that has not stopped till today, but it is throughout Tanakh. It is the source of the battle between Kain and Hevel. The Midrash picks up on that. Right? Who else? Which other famous brothers who are to the death against each other, although they don't kill each other, but one threatens to, are also one's a shepherd, one's a farmer. Esau and Yaakov. Esau is a farmer and Yaakov is a shepherd. And by the way, what is the famous prophecy about Esau and Yaakov? You have two children in your belly and they're going and they are two nations in your womb and they're going to separate from birth and they will fight against each other and they and the younger will rule over the older. And it immediately happens because what's the first thing we hear about them? They're born looking different. 
and they go into opposite, not different, opposite professions that are against each other. You understand why shepherds and farmers hate each other. You understand mainly why farmers hate shepherds. So let's roll it back. By the way, a couple of years ago, and I mean, like in the last five years, um, it was written up in the Journal of Archaeological, Archaeological Science, but it's in also other journals. So DNA, uh, DNA that they found on sarcophagi from Egypt indicated that for a good part of the second millennium BCE, Egyptians largely had a vegetarian diet. Supporting the Radak and Ibn Ezra, who read it from the Psukim, eating meat is a toiva, but I think it's for a different reason. Let's go back here. What did Paro call animals? He didn't call them possessions. He didn't call them sources of food. He didn't call them things to ride on. What did he call them? Grazers. How do I look at animals? I look at animals as potential consumers, consumers of our grain. Paro's dreams are all about grain. This is a grain-based economy. What do we think about animals? The only good use for animals to plow, cows. Sheep are verboten. We don't want sheep here. Sheep are just parasites. They eat stuff. So it's not so much because of revering that take. And it's not because shepherds are the ones who control animals that should be walking free like in the streets of Calcutta, like the Ibn Ezra. It's simply that we detest animals. What happens as a result of that? Yosef, who sees his responsibility. We talked about this in the context of the dreams. Yosef, who sees his responsibility towards his brothers, is not only feeding them the first dream, the stalks, but also is taking care of their spiritual success or at least spiritual maintenance. And that's the dream of the stars. When the brothers come down, the first thing he says, I'm going to feed you. I'll take care of you. And the second thing is, go tell Paro your shepherd so he'll put you far away from everybody else. He'll put you in Goshen, which is near the Delta, which is not arable. You can't grow anything there. And guess what? You will be on your own, far away from the center, and therefore you will be safe from Egyptian influence. And for several generations, evidently that worked. So Yosef used the attitude of the Mitzrim towards the Ivrim brilliantly to his advantage to say, since the Mitzrim hate us because we're shepherds, because we take care of animals that graze and eat other people's food, and we're the ones responsible for that theft and destruction of crops. As a result of that, um, he's able to get the brothers to go live far away from the center and be able to maintain their spiritual security. I want you to think now to the plagues of Egypt, and you'll see what I'm saying. What's the first plague? Hey, Don, you can't water your plants. Frogs, of course, they're irritating. Kinim, we're not going to talk about that. What's the next one? Arov. What's Arov? So it's either a bunch of mixed animals or mixed bugs. Machloke. What's Dever? How do we translate Dever? Dever is a cattle plague, and all the cattle die. Then there's Shrin, and then there's Barad, which attacks the grains. Then there's Arbed that eats the grains. The attack on Egypt is an attack on an agricultural society, not on a ranching society. And we do not hear about animals being there except for the cattle. And the cattle, as we see consistently, um, are, um, are used for plowing. One last note about the cattle. Something I heard many years ago, an interesting little point, which I don't think is shot, but it's very cute. If you look at sarcophagi of pharaohs, 
Paronim, as we call them, pharaohs, up until around the middle of the second millennium, you see that they either were buried and they had something that looked like a white hat on with a scythe in their hand, or else a red hat on with a cattle prod in their hand. Starting somewhere around the middle of the, of the uh, second millennium, around 15th, 16th century BCE, suddenly you see pharaohs with both white and red hat and both signs. Why are these signs? Because if you remember, Egypt used to be two different countries. There's Upper Egypt, which is south, and Lower Egypt, which is near the Mediterranean. Upper Egypt was a, um, was the symbol was of the cattle prod, evidently. Sorry, the scythe. And the cattle prod was evidently the symbol of, of Lower Egypt, further north. What happens in Yosef's time? Around Yosef's time, suddenly you see the pharaohs buried with both. And it could be that that was part of Yosef's solution to Paro. Your dream is one. Your two dreams of the cows and the stalks are one. It's time to unite the Egypt of the cows and the Egypt of the stalks and bring them together. But in any case, it was a country that was chiefly agronomic. And as a result of that, it saw the, the sheep as intruders, as, as unwanted. And therefore, these shepherds, Nebuch, we had to accept them because they're Yosef's brothers. But we don't like them, so we're going to put them far away. And suddenly, all the psukim seem to fall into place. Any questions? Or So why, why did Yosef still serve the brothers? Why didn't he serve them vegetables? Um. It may be that he was already setting up the brothers to be seen as kind of a necessary evil, like we need to deal with him because they are Yosef's brothers when, they, when they're going to be revealed. Yosef perhaps had in mind always that he was going to eventually have them settle there. And he maybe wanted to already set them up with a reputation as being kind of these nasty outsiders that we don't like very much so that they would be separate. So, by the way, there are some commentators, I think the Shadal claims, that without a doubt, Yosef followed all the rules and they served them only Egyptian food that was based on Egyptian custom and everything else. Kind of what Abe said, but inside out, uh, that was prepared according to Egyptian ritual and all. Um, uh, in which case, this whole thing about sitting separately in the Tualat Mitzrayim has to be interpreted differently. But I don't think that's the case. Because he says, Tvoach Tavach Vachein. Right? Like the, like the Rishonim say, you know, he said, Say slaughter, so that means he slaughtered meat to give to them. Okay. Thank you.